Welcome to Corporately. I'm Glenn. And I'm Denny. Today, we're talking about a critical part of the work-life balance equation. As we all know and have experienced, time off is crucial in order to unwind, spend time with family, and generally refresh your mind and body. We all need vacations and holidays. First, a couple of extreme facts. Unlike the rest of the world, the U.S. government does not require employers to pay employees for time not worked. While we have government holidays and other laws requiring employers to offer time off, employers are not required to pay you for that time. Paid time off is an agreement between the employer and the employee. On the other end, of all the countries in the world, Iran mandates the most time off. Employers are required to provide 53 days of paid time off per employee to full-time workers every year. Those are two ends of the spectrum, and there are lots of details in between. Of course, employers in the U.S. do offer paid time off to full-time workers, and it varies, but it is also a fact that, in general, U.S. workers take less time off every year. We'll be getting into some facts and stats, but the crazy thing is we kind of don't know why. Various ideas have been put out there. Some point to the lack of government mandates, like we just talked about. Some say it's consumerism that we all want to buy more and more things. Some say it's lower payroll taxes because we get to take home more of what we earn. We are incentivized to work more. Some point to the Protestant work ethic, but I don't buy any of these explanations. In fact, this has not always been the case up until the early 80s. The US and Europe were similar in the amount of paid time off taken. And it's not just the US. There are crazy stories about Japanese workers literally working themselves to death and other examples that we'll be getting into. But again, There's no commonly held definitive answer out there that explains why Americans work so much generally. Until now, fortunately, Denny, I do have the answer, and I'll be laying that out later in the discussion. I'm not sure you're going to agree with it, but it is the most straightforward explanation, and therefore I'm going to argue it It is probably correct. But let's jump in. Where do you want to kick us off? Well, I find it interesting that you've already got this figured out ahead of time. I'm looking (laughs) forward to hearing what that conclusion turns out to be. I thought perhaps what we'd start with is just a quick review of vacation, Hmm. what that means throughout the world and kind of how all this got started. And then we can wander into some of the details. Many of the things that you just brought up, I think we can look at in a bit more depth. It's actually quite intriguing. The concept of vacations as relates to work is relatively new in the history of the world, at least. If we just focus on the U.S., I think that can serve sort of as an example of the way it's worked throughout time. And if we look back before the Civil War in the U.S., this country was mostly an agrarian society. So it was mostly agricultural, self-supporting things, which implies that people were largely self-employed. They had their farms and they would raise crops and livestock. And that was a completely different situation than what we have today. In those days, the number of hours that people worked was enormous by current standards. It was not uncommon for people to spend daylight to dark six days a week during those times because that's what it took to grow your own food and take care of yourselves. Obviously, that changed once the Industrial Revolution came along, which was one of those turning points where society's ideas and operational structures changed dramatically because we went from a society where you woke up and went out in your yard and worked to a society where you traveled to a factory. And in those early days of factory work, it was not uncommon for people to work six days a week, 12 or even more hours a day. There was just no concept of anything other than work. 
One thing that I think is appropriate to mention at this point, you talked about the Protestant work ethic. That's actually a fairly big part of why we're in the position that we're in today in this country. And we'll get into that more detail as we go ahead, but I think that that's a very good point that you brought up. In earlier times, vacation was something that really was in the hands of the wealthy, people that could afford to take time away because they had financial resources and they had the money to spend on, in those days, expensive travel. And that began to change once industry started taking over, and most notably in this country and probably in the rest of the world, railroads. With the advent of railroads in the, like in the 1830s, the ability to travel away from home became something that more and more people could pursue. And that over time translated into the interstate highway system we've got now post-World War II. Air transport these days, pretty much everybody's flying around. There's a small percentage of people in the U.S. that have never flown, but it's like 10%. So the ability to travel ties very closely into this whole idea of being able to take vacations. That's kind of the sociological aspect of it. People are able to travel today. There's a lot more opportunity to travel today. Many more people can afford it. And importantly, there's an entire economic infrastructure built up to support that. Hotels, resorts, the, the destination vacations, that's big business. We're talking billions of dollars and millions of jobs that are dependent on that. So you've got sort of pressure coming from that industrial aspect to convince people that they need to travel, they need to take vacations. So that sets up this conflict. It's a good point that you bring up that some of the nations that we might not expect to be the most generous in mandating time off are countries like Iran. The European Union mandates a minimum of all member countries of four weeks vacation a year for everybody. It's vastly different from here. I think the simplest explanation for this is actually one that you said you might not agree with, and that is based on the Protestant work ethic that we as a nation have this sort of underlying belief that success is kind of a moral obligation and success is measured most certainly in this country by wealth. So the people that we consider the most successful are the ones that have the most money. And the way you make the most money is you work the hardest. But I also think there are a couple of maybe unique factors in the job market in the U.S. that you don't necessarily see in every other country. And that has to do with the fact that there is a much more common trend for people to change jobs in the U.S., and it's tied into this idea that success equals hard work. In my experience in working, it was very common for people in the IT industry to spend a couple or three years in a particular job all the time looking for the next opportunity because what you get when you move typically is a bump in pay. So that just sort of sets the stage for how we're in this position. So the factors that make vacation a little different here, I believe, are, are rooted in our sociological background. And in this concept that we have as Americans of success equals money. You mentioned earlier job tenure being a potential source of some of the differences. I want to go back to that for a moment. We've all experienced that when you start a new job, you're usually in the process of accruing vacation. I've certainly experienced being in vacation debt, and there is such a thing uh, where you've started a new job and you have a pre-planned vacation and all of a sudden you owe the company money because you're taking this time off, which is a, a bit of a switch. Whereas in Europe, perhaps not changing jobs is often longer job tenure. People tend to, after five years, get a certain bump in the vacation, 10 years more, 15 or 20. That seems to be pretty common. So that, that seems like a plausible 
explanation for some of it, but why aren't U.S. workers taking the vacation that they're allotted? U.S. workers don't take all of the vacation that they've accrued. Well, you're right about that. And this is, as we've had in some of our earlier podcasts, a situation where the deeper you dig, the more likely you are to find research to back up whatever position you want to take. (laughs) But in that particular instance, when we're talking about vacation left on the table, there does seem to be some consistency in what all sorts of research has proven. And that is that close to 60% of American workers leave vacation on the table. And it's a shocking number. Close to 60% leave as much as two weeks of unused vacation on the table every year. That's almost inconceivable to me. I'm a guy who at the start of every year, I would plan every day of vacation that I had coming. I don't think that I fully understand the motivation behind leaving that much on the table, but I can look at at the facts behind it and maybe come to some conclusions that probably are correct. And I think it goes back to those two points that I mentioned, and that is that success is defined as wealth. And the way that you accrue wealth is you get a job that pays well and you continue to climb the, the salary ladder as much as you can. I think there's also an unusual amount of fear in the U.S. job market about layoffs, about being terminated and replaced. That would be a situation where you would be less likely to take time off for fear that it's somehow going to send the message to your managers that you're not quite as dedicated as you should be and you'll be replaced by somebody else. And again, remember, you've got all this churning. So that's both behind you and ahead of you. That's other people that are trying to get your position while you're trying to get their position. It's this movement that you don't see quite as much of in other countries. It is interesting. I I read an article just this morning about the job market in China, where there is this sudden surge of unemployment amongst people over 35 years old. The Chinese job market is very different than that in the U.S. But within the past few years, this has suddenly become an issue. And a lot of these people, once they get, say, 10 or 15 years of experience, are finding that they can't get hired. The reasoning is probably largely financial. It's cheaper to hire somebody right out of school than somebody that's got 10 years of experience. So they may be experiencing a a completely different kind of job churn than we are here in the U.S. and for slightly different reasons. But functionally, it's kind of the same thing that you worry about where you're going to be working when you're in a market that feels unstable. And whether that instability is caused, as it seems to be in China now, by the fact that all of a sudden you're 35, or here in the US, where there seem to be lots of upsizing, downsizing, all of the time you're a little insecure. I know that you've probably experienced, as have I, the realization that there is a big difference in the way companies plan strategically in the U.S. as opposed to a, a lot of other countries. And that has to do with much more short-sighted view in the U.S. Things are based on quarters. So in the U.S., if you're a CEO, the thing that you're always targeting is the next quarterly meeting of your shareholders in which you prove, wow, look how much money we made this quarter. And that tends to give you relatively short-sighted plans. If all you're trying to do is boost your bottom line for the next quarter, and the best way to do that, the fastest way to do that is to lay off half your workforce, you're suddenly going to have a higher number. Most other countries, and most notably Asian countries, tend to think in longer terms. Part of what we're seeing here in the U.S. is just this structural difference in the way companies are run. And I'm not quite certain even how to explain it other than that. 
if you're a shareholder in the U.S., you're always looking at the bottom line and the CEOs know that. So in order to keep you happy as a shareholder, they're doing very short-term things. And that causes a lot of churn and a lot of insecurity. So if you're a worker, as you and I both have been, you realize that at any given day, the project that you're on could be canceled for reasons that don't make a lot of sense unless you consider it's all bottom line driven. Yeah, I think we can also point out between Europe and the US, when you are severed, there are big differences in the amount of pay you're given as you're exited out the back door. In the US, it's very common. It's one week of severance pay for every year of service and of course paying you out for any unused vacation. In Europe, there are some specific examples. 18 days of severance pay for every year of service is not uncommon, at least for the first three years. Years thereafter, maybe it goes down to 12 days. Certain countries like Germany, severance pay is higher in terms of it's more like 50% of a month of wages for every year of service. What I'm pointing out is the amount of severance pay that a U.S. worker gets is a fraction of what it is in these other countries. So that fear that you mentioned is a bit more palpable in terms of a layoff for a U.S. worker. Yeah, and I, I don't think this is even something that's necessarily consciously on our mind when we're doing this. So another complication of this is that because you look at these lists of mandated vacation at the very bottom of the list is the U.S., there are actually a few other nations that like us have no laws, but they're they're not what you would call fully industrialized nations. In terms of comparing the economies, you can't. But I, I do think that our case here in the U.S., the reason that nothing has been enacted is both because of that work ethic thing that we talked about and because of this churn in the job market and the associated fear that comes with that. This is a complicated thing for me to try to explain because I feel like there's about four different factors that weigh into this. And one of them has to do with any particular nation, where are you in the, the cycle? You, we've all heard of developed nations, transitional nations, and undeveloped nations. And the undeveloped nations would be a lot of the Central African countries that are struggling economically, that have massive amounts of unskilled labor, many more people per job than you find in the more developed nations like the US where you've got a lot of technology. So those are very different labor markets. That has some to do with it. The other thing is that as you consider what drives people to anticipate or expect they would get time off has something to do with their relative skill and leverage. We've spoken about this in the past in, in the job market. In the US, workers have a tremendous amount of leverage in the sense that they can always leave and go somewhere else, but they don't seem to be able to use that to exert anything into terms of government enforcement. And you've mentioned several times the differences between the US and Europe. In Europe, there are very strong labor laws that were enacted by both individual nations and the European Union. And these labor laws say you as an employer, if you have, I, I don't know what the number is, more than 100 employees will abide by these rules. And there are enforcement actions taken when that is not met. In the U.S., each individual company gets to decide what they do and their vacation, their termination their PTO policies are all driven by a competitive edge that they're seeking. As you know, depending on where you work, if you leave or are laid off, there are huge differences in the benefits that you get. But it's not government mandated. It's the individual company that does that. Typically, a bigger company uh, will provide better severance. 
than a small one, simply because I think they've got the capacity. Different kinds of work have different amounts of leverage for the employee, which translates into better or worse vacation policies within those companies. It's all about the supply and demand of work. So let's go back to those developing countries in Central Africa where their industries are essentially agriculture or mining. Mining is a very big thing in Africa. You know, as they're digging things out to support the electric car business, you've got probably millions of unskilled laborers who are just desperate to find a job that will provide them enough money to feed them. So if you don't like your working conditions, the employer is going to say, fine, leave. There's 50 guys standing outside the door that all want your job. So you get no leverage whatsoever. So there are no rules. There's no vacation for sure. The other thing you'll find, this just pops into my head. I want to mention it before I forget it. And that is that in different kinds of work, it's all about the availability of the skill that drives the benefits that you're going to get by law or not. And if you're in a highly skilled, much in demand position where it's hard to find people, it's much more likely that the company that hires you is going to give you benefits. Uh, let's back up for just a second too and, and point out that ironically, the first move in the world to provide paid time off was from within the US. We haven't done it, but the idea seems to have first originated here. And there were some dramatic statements that were made in the 1800s and early 1900s by political leaders who were thinking, this is the right thing to do, none of which happened. Certain bills were promoted, never even got out of committee. They were quashed for various and sundry reasons, but were left with essentially no legislation other than the Family Medical Leave Act. That's kind of the only workplace statutory legislation that exists. And that's the one where you're guaranteed some time off if you have a medical issue or an immediate family with some problem. I find that interesting because that's probably something that doesn't exist in every other country. For some reason, it made it through here. But the bottom line is, in the U.S., apparently, we prefer to work more than taking time off. But doesn't the Family Medical Leave Act while it requires employers to offer time off, it doesn't require you to be paid. That's true. Which is a big difference in my mind. Yeah, that's a good point. How do you explain the differences really started to accelerate between the US and the rest of the, the world in the 80s, in the early 80s? I think the difference is, again, it's kind of sociological. Majority of the European countries have much more socialist trending governments. And I mean, we all know that taxes in every European country are significantly higher in the US. That's supposedly why the Beatles moved to the United States when they were making all that money. But I, I think that's a big part of it is that both the people and the governments of most European nations view the society at a slightly more important level than the individual. The United States is clearly a, a capitalist country where it's all about the bottom line. It's how can I make the most money and spend the least to get there? Mm -hmm. It's just a very, very different perspective on how we live and the things that matter and, and how much other people matter as opposed to us. Again, kind of circles back to that work ethic. You know, the, the Puritans, who are the originators of the Protestant work ethic, very strongly believe that work in and of itself was a great and highly moral obligation that they had to meet. So that idea, even though it was in the 1700s, really deeply underlies, I think, a lot of the, the concept of this country. Hard work is the way to go. It's important that you work hard, that you be self-sufficient. This, uh, I think, also kind of underlies a lot of 
the philosophy in our society in the United States about the individual is responsible for themselves. It's up to you to take care of yourself. Your primary responsibility is to make enough to support the family. I think all that kind of ties together. And even though it's not something that maybe we discuss, that it's not a, a topic of conversation, it's just somehow deeply embedded in our, our psyche. And as a nation, we tend to kind of follow that without even consciously thinking about why we're doing it. Of course, now what we've got is a, a deeply divided culture in the U.S. And I think that there are more people that are starting to question the whole approach because now there's there's always been the big divide between the political parties about should we provide for everyone or is all about you're responsible for yourself. I mean, that's to me, that's sort of a basic tenet of our society that doesn't necessarily exist in other countries for whatever reason. But you have to remember that when the United States was first overrun by Europeans, it was it was those people who were fleeing Europe because they wanted this individual freedom. They wanted the ability to worship how they believed. They wanted their societal norms to be allowed. And in many cases, they weren't. So you got this concentration of people who felt like they were being oppressed, who when they came to the U.S., the single most important thing was, I get to do what I want to do. I'm the most important factor here. It's my belief that I want to support. When you form a nation with that basis, I think it's easy to understand how we would come to the point today where a lot of that philosophy still exists. That's still a very basic driver of our national consciousness, whether we're aware of it or not. Okay, I can buy that. I can buy the work ethic for sure. The impact that work ethic on our values, on the self-sufficient kind of ideal. I think it's a good point too that labor laws, while the trends in Europe pushed for stronger labor laws, it didn't take hold in the US like it did in Europe. I want to add one other thing out there. In the early 80s, there was a wave of mergers and acquisitions that started and that generated massive layoffs. I've certainly been part of these, even part of planning these things and the, the magic word of synergies, which re really is a nice way of saying combining two companies and laying off a third of the workforce to make more money. And at the same time, you saw the start of the massive pay differential that was happening between top executives and the lower levels of the company, which is a topic that I think we should cover in a whole episode. And of course, the push for more and bigger and massive profits and massive sort of squeezing of money out of existing financials. All of that, to me, coincided with this shrinking of U.S. vacations while Europeans and other nations expanded. What do you think about that? I think all that is true. One thing we need to keep in mind is that there's a big disparity in the U.S. between companies. So I've worked for both tiny little companies of 100 people and corporations of 60,000. I've seen great differences in what they offer in terms of these kinds of perks. Because it's up to the individual company, they actually get to decide what they want to do because there are no laws. You don't have to adhere to the European Union's mandated four weeks if there are no laws. It comes down to what do I need as a company to do to encourage the best workers to come to my company and work on my stuff. This kind of started after World War II, uh, because of course, during World War II, vacations were kind of non-existent. I, I do think people managed to get away to refresh themselves a little bit, but it was a difficult and dark time. And after the war, a couple of things happened. One, there, there were all these airplanes that were available, so the aviation industry was launched. And 
people were actually able to travel a little bit. There were all the returning service people. So there was this huge economic boom and there was a kind of a fight for getting the best workers because whatever it is you're doing, you want to succeed. And the way you succeed is you get the best and the smartest. Vacation was added as a work perk in order to encourage people to come and work for you. So I understand why it appeared. And then I think I understand why we tend as a nation to not use it. And I think that everything that you referred to, you know, the the upheavals of the 80s, uh, and there are other cycles that we've been through, all contribute to this. But it doesn't really address, okay, well, if all these companies are offering all these great benefits, why are we not as employers using them? To me, that's kind of the crux of what it is that we're trying to tease out here. And why, why do I offer you four weeks of vacation, but you only take two? must come down to some sort of societal anxiety about if I go away, bad things happen. And those bad things could be, I get laid off because I'm not considered a team player. Could be more mundane things. And I know that you've experienced this, and that is, okay, I've put in for and been granted a two-week vacation, and I'm going to go away and do nothing. But I got all this work I need to queue up ahead of time. And then it's going to be a nightmare when I come back because I'm going to have 5,000 emails in my inbox. I'm going to have all this extra work to do at the end of the vacation. In the bigger picture, I begin to question, is it even worth it? When I go away, if, and this is a big if, if I can avoid getting called, if I can avoid reading emails, if I can avoid having to work while I'm on vacation, I still have this bolus of stuff that's piled up when I come back. So those are some of the negatives that I think work, and they're very real. You can't pretend like this is not not the case. This does happen to each and every one of us. Then there's another interesting set of statistics that have to do with what I just referred to, and that is, okay, you do take some time off and you go away for a couple of weeks. How much time do you spend working while you're there? So here's another interesting note. There are some rules in place in Europe that establish boundaries to when you can access email while you're on vacation. There are considered hours when you're no longer allowed to log into the email server if you're Mm -hmm. supposedly on vacation. What's the point of taking vacation if you're still working? Then there's a bunch of statistics that talk about how much time people spend working while they are supposedly on vacation. And it's shockingly high. But I think it all comes back to the same sorts of problems that we're discussing. And that is, there is this innate fear that if I suddenly back off on the throttle, bad things are going to happen to me. I'm not going to succeed. I'm going to be in the next layoff list. Somebody else is going to replace me. So all of that insecurity is simply part of our our culture. This is the working culture that we've got. Yeah, I think now might be a good time to introduce one of my theories. Well, it's not my theory. It's a motivational theory in psychology called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It explains, you know that one, yeah. It explains generally you need to feel satisfied with lower levels on the hierarchy before you can take care of the higher needs. And there are five tiers. The first is just physical needs like food and clothing and shelter. The next is safety, like feeling secure. And in this tier, I would put job security. And then above that is love and belonging, esteem and self-actualization. But where I think a lot of people are getting stuck now in corporate America is this idea in the second level. Corporate America is very good at reminding us that our employment is at will. We discussed this in our last discussion about RTO. Employers can fire you for almost any reason. 
There's only a short list of reasons they can't fire you that the government has defined, but it's a constant reminder that you should feel lucky to have your job. Combine that with all the cultural norms and the pressures to be a provider for your family, to be independent, to be working hard. It's a big motivation to try to show your employer, whether you're on vacation or sitting in your cube or it's midnight, that you're a workaholic and they shouldn't fire you. Maslow's hierarchy is is interesting to me. I think it's really pretty simple to understand, and the way you explained it is right, and that is that if my only motivation in life, and it's you know the beginning of human time, and I'm being attacked by saber-toothed tigers, that's really all I have time to think about. And that second tier that you referred to, you know, the fear, the security, the safety, I think it's absolutely spot on. I do believe that much of the driver for the way that we work is out of fear. Now, there's another side to that, and that is people who are just driven. There are folks that for some reason have much more ambition, much more focus perhaps than me. They have a clear path of where they want to go and they do whatever it takes to get there. Those people are going to work hard, not because of fear, but because they've got some goal at the end that they can see. You talk about that in terms of, uh, you mentioned something about the Japanese and how much they work. I, I was interested to find that in Japan and Korea and Singapore, some of the countries that sort of match the US and the ridiculous number of hours that we work as developed nations, the Japanese culture, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, is where they invented the phrase death by overwork. They even have a word for it. I can't recall what it is, but there's a Japanese term for that. And it was based on this idea that became very popular that you needed to be in the office before your manager showed up and you did not leave the office until your manager left. So it had absolutely nothing to do with any kinds of personal objectives, what you were trying to accomplish. It had nothing whatsoever to do with the work that you were expected to do. It was this perception that you had to pretend like you were more in invested, more dedicated than even your boss. That's a, kind of a lot of what I think you're referring to there is that we are, we're afraid that if we don't look like we're trying harder than anybody, we're going to be on the next layoff list. That's a cultural issue that I have no idea how you overcome, but that must be one of the very base causes for why we're leaving all this vacation on the table. The companies offer it, but you don't take it. It also makes me wonder if part of the strategic planning of companies is, sure, we'll offer them four weeks because half of the people aren't going to take it. So it's not going to be as expensive a benefit as it looks like on paper. Both the Japanese and the Korean culture is, interestingly, I believe that we have this idea here that we're not the worst of the worst. We're not the ones that work the most hours in the developed nations. Let's clarify that it is always these other Asian countries, the ones I just mentioned, in particular, Japan and South Korea. Truth is, they're decreasing and have been for a number of years. The number of hours that Japanese and South Korean and some of the Eastern Asian countries work is on the decline. The number of hours that Americans work is going up. Just within the last five years, those things have started to shift. We're apparently putting more effort into our work as Americans than some of the more expected cultures are. But once again, I do believe that all this is based on some sort of deep-seated, almost unanalyzed cultural thing that says you have to work hard for whatever reason. It's just a belief that we hold, and it is affecting every aspect of everyone's life. Let me stay on the fear concept for one more minute. Fear can sometimes be irrational, but it's very powerful, even if it's sort of a infrequent or unlikely event. I have friends who have been laid off, 
who had technical backgrounds, who had great experience, but for whatever reason, they were out of work for long periods of time. One friend of mine was out of work for 16 months and they applied to hundreds of jobs. Another friend of mine was out of work for six months and he had young kids. And that's a huge motivator for me to think about, wow, I got to be thinking about if my current employer isn't doing well, I need to be ready to move on to the next job. And there's lots of of course, things that you can do. You can get your resume ready. You can start looking for new jobs before you get laid off. But the idea of one week per year at my current employer, I would get two weeks of severance, which would be a ridiculously little amount of time to find a new job. I couldn't do it. It would be months probably for me. So I I looked this morning, I have 106 hours of banked vacation. And to me, banked vacation is another way of getting severance because they have to pay that out when you leave. So I know in my head, it may be unlikely that I'd be laid off, but I also know that if I were covering that gap between my last paycheck and my new job paycheck might be months and it would probably impact me for a few years before I could get back on top in a good financial position. And this might be what's driving a lot of that, not using your vacation. And it might be irrational, as I mentioned. I don't think it's an irrational fear. You know, a rational fear would be if you're in Yellowstone and you're hiking on a trail and come around a corner and there's a grizzly bear charging you. That's a rational fear. An irrational fear, I think, is what we're talking about here, where you're afraid of something that hasn't happened, but that could happen. And mm -hmm. it becomes kind of the focus of your life. But you're, you're spot on with this as well, the fact that if you get laid off, you really have no idea of what's going on. I should also point out that not every state and not every company will pay you your banked vacation. Hmm. So that's going to vary depending on where you are. There are surprisingly few states that have laws that regulate bank vacation or PTO. And I mean, there aren't many. It's uh, California and Arizona and Colorado. And most states have absolutely no regulations, uh, no requirement that you roll things forward, any PTO or anything else. You're right, though, that I think it's policy driven. Company by company, so any major company, yeah. right? Any so major company. There's, there's no be, uh, law that forces that to happen. So it's going to depend on your company. But if you're working for, a, I don't know, an oil exploration company in North Dakota, there may not be any policy behind that. If you get laid off, you're just you're gone. Your last paycheck was your last paycheck. That's all there is. Yeah, that's although it might be somewhat irrational. It, it's a real concern, and you do need to plan for that. I, I get that. Anything that you can do to impress your boss, whether it's show up before the boss shows up and don't leave until the boss leaves or don't take vacation or work 10 hours a day, that's the driver. And I think that the difference we're seeing is that there are nations that don't feel like that's the way it should be, that there should be some guarantee that if you go to work for this company, you're going to get some benefits no matter what happens. So there will be some severance. That's probably something that everybody in the world has to deal with at some point, or they're going to lose a job for whatever reason, either because you annoyed the boss or a project got canceled, or there's a merger with someone else and you're dupe. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that that can happen. And that's kind of just part of life. But I do think that you're exactly right, that that is a huge part of why we're sort of afraid to take this time off. It's a complicated issue because, of course, it depends on, on the country you're in. It depends on the company that you work for. It depends on as many of the things that you and I have talked about. It depends on the kind of work that you're doing, the whole supply demand sort of thing. If, if you're digging for cobalt 
in Chad, you know, you don't really have much say about what goes on because there's all these guys standing behind you wanting your job. On the other hand, if you're an AI engineer in Silicon Valley, they're going to give you a million dollars a year to come to work for you and beg you to work for them. There's no single point of focus on this. It's just this cultural, societal, governmental, historical, confusing sort of thing. I think that's why it's interesting to talk about. One in four Americans don't receive any paid vacation leave. Shocking, isn't it? So if you're an employee at a bakery, maybe it's a mom and pop shop, and you're working 40 hours a week, there's a good chance that there is no paid vacation policy for you, which makes me think the labor laws of Europe are much more protective of employees. We tend to protect the employer more. And the laissez-faire kind of attitude towards business really has an impact on hourly type of paid workers. I was a little surprised at those numbers too, or just how many people do not get any vacation. I never felt like I got enough. The mm-hmm. most generous position I ever had, I got four weeks of vacation. It was actual vacation time. I got two weeks of sick time. All of this was carryable. You would hit the end of the year and it would all roll forward. But I've also had plenty of jobs in my life where there was nothing. You get this much an hour, depending on how many hours you work, and that's all there was. It depends to a great deal on on what it is that you do. I think this is one of the reasons that I encourage my kids to get good education, to get into a field where there is a demand for their skill set, because it all eventually comes down to that. If you're doing something that is skilled, requires a lot of training, a lot of experience, a lot of education, and the demand is higher than the available workers, that's good. On the other hand, if the only thing you know how to do is unskilled manual labor, and you're in one of these non-developed nations, you don't have a lot of say. Henry Ford introduced the 40-hour workweek back in whatever it was, 1925 or something, and it revolutionized the country. But there are very few places today where you actually only work 40 hours. It's typically more than that. The idea that the 40-hour work week is somehow this universal standard, I think, is misleading. And it also has to do with the relative wealth of a country. In the developing world, the, the countries that are struggling to catch up that don't have the technology, work weeks are much, much longer than 40 hours. It's not uncommon for people to work six days a week, seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. Mm. And that's just to keep food on the table. We have to remember that the situation we have is not bad compared to that. And in the developed world, there is this sort of almost universally accepted 40-hour standard. There are some exceptions, of course. But when you look at that, some of the European nations don't even come close to that. Luxembourg, which is ironically both the wealthiest nation like per capita and the most productive nation in the world, has an actual hours per week of like 28. There seems to be some growing research that says working more does not produce more, that there is some sort of a a line that when you have more hours than this spent in work, your productivity goes down. We talked recently about in the remote environment how it seems like many people who work remote are actually giving their company more hours than they would if they were going in. And ironically, it turns out that that's not always necessarily a more productive time period because statistics are showing, and again, this is going to depend on the kind of work you do. There is a a number at which your productivity goes down, and it's probably because of mental or physical or combination fatigue, but it's not 40 hours. It's less than that. 
So the most productive work weeks are somewhere in the 30, 35 hour range. I think as time passes, we may actually see a decrease in the number of hours that people work because they're able to do more, more efficiently and get things done higher quality faster. That's a good point. I've found myself at times telling folks that are working on some of my projects as a joke, please don't work on my project in your 50th hour of work for the week. <laughs> I want I want it to be early in the week when you're fresh and productive. Well, there's a reason that you say that, and that is that you understand that this is a fact, that mental fatigue or physical fatigue, depending on your line of work, means that you're not going to do as good a job Friday afternoon. It's just not going to happen. We've always all heard the, the big joke about never buy a car that's built on Monday or something like that, <laughs> because the worker comes in from a weekend and they're tired. They're not quite fully up to speed and they're assembling your Ford F-150, but they're not doing as good a job as they do on Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah. So Danny, you've helped to change my mind. I think I came into this thinking that fear was the main driver, but I think the work ethic plays a huge role. I think that mentality too plays a role in what laws the politicians have enacted in the US. I do think there's, as we just discussed, there's a big element of fear that drives employees to want to bank vacation if their company has a policy to pay it out and generally to just show that they're workaholics to their bosses because who knows when the next layoff will be and when you'll be back on the street looking for another job. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a there's a term that is applied to employment in the US and it's called frictional displacement it has to do with the things you just referred to and that is that working in the US is a little different than working in most other countries and and perhaps Maybe the same sort of thing applies in some of the Asian nations, but that has to do with the fact that there's a lot of movement. As we alluded to very early in this conversation, people don't tend to stay in the same job for a long time. So you're always kind of ready to move. And that creates a certain friction between you and your employer because you're kind of always looking for the door and the employer is always kind of watching you look for the door and they're trying mm -hmm. to get the most out of you and you're trying to get the most out of them. So there's this friction. And some of that is going to, I think, display in fear, probably from both sides. I'm just going to let this guy go because I think he's leaving anyway, or I'm mm -hmm. going to get out of here because I think I'm going to get laid off. Absolutely. So a lot of that. And then if you're the employer, you're trying to find this balance where you're not giving away the farm, that you're giving the employee as much as you can give them to entice them to come and work for you and stay there because of the cost of hiring and training but you don't want to give away more because it affects your bottom line. So everybody's in this dance, trying to find the exact right moves to, to get the most. Well, Denny, you said something earlier, and maybe we can wrap it up here, but in your career, I know I've done this. How many employees have come into the office despite being desperately sick, a cold, the flu, green, but you come into the office because you figure like, I got to come in, I got to show my face, I got to show my boss that I'm willing to do this and do whatever it takes. And all you're doing is spreading a virus throughout, throughout the company, which given the pandemic puts a new spin on what you're doing. When you try to show your loyalty to the company, you might actually be creating bigger issues. That's a very good point. And I think that that's the basic reason that sick leave was invented you know, to give people a chance to do that. And then you've got all of the various machinations of this where you feel like it's an, a negative mark on you if you don't show up because you're sick. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I've, I've been there too. I've seen this many times. I've done it myself where I had some sort of big project and I went in when I probably shouldn't have. 
that part might have been driven less by me being afraid of what my supervisor would think than I was concerned about not getting something done that had been promised. So you're driven by a few things, but that whole concept, whether it's sick time or vacation time, it's actually... I think based on the same principle, and that is that you can't work all the time and you can't work all the time at your best. As an employer, you need to give the employees the freedom to refresh and relax and kind of regain their energy. But you also need to be very realistic when you're sick. Don't come in here because that's bad for all of us. You're not going to do your best, but you're going to impact me by making other people sick. And then they're going to not do their best, whether they're there or not. That's another point that's very real, a very real problem. Again, it's going to be company by company. If you've got a company where you feel like you're being judged for taking a sick day, that's not good. Once again, great discussion, Denny. I appreciate these chats. Thank you. You've enlightened me in a way that I didn't know I'd be enlightened. I thought for sure I had the answer, but I understand now it's more nuanced. I think there is a lot of nuance and I certainly don't have the answer either, but I will tell you this. Uh, when we're done here, I'm going to get back to planning my next vacation. Thank you, Dan. Have a good one, Glenn.